right, and welcome to Rise of the Rule Lords. I am your daring and auspicious Rule Lord, Pete. And I am a little bit behind on recording my quick and dirty guide to jamming, but luckily I have an awesome panel covering the soft skills of being a game master for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. As I'll cover in that episode, there are a lot of mechanical aspects to be aware of as a game master for 2nd Edition or any game that you're going to run, but there are a number of soft skills that truly make you a great game master. These are things that you're not going to be able to find on a stat block or in the index. The book does have a couple of suggestions, but really you're going to have to make these changes yourself, uh, do some research, get some advice. Luckily, we have three of the best here for you today. The wondering public wants to know, who are you? What are you drinking? What are your pronouns? And what's your claim to fame? So first off is veteran game designer and one of the authors of The Strength of Thousands Adventure Path, Quinn Murphy. What am I? Uh, pronouns first? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he, him. And uh, what am I drinking? Um, I just finished uh, some coffee, uh, powered, powered mostly by coffee. And uh, claim to fame. Hmm. Uh, I've been doing uh, different sort of game design that's freelancing in my own stuff for over a decade now. Um, and these days I spend a lot of time um, doing little mini game design rants on Twitter. And I think, I think that's where a lot of people sort of encounter me these days. <laughs> awesome. Uh, next is GM of goblets and gays game designer and writer, Aubrey Nuts. Hello. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I am also drinking coffee because that is honestly, you cut me, I bleed coffee. But my claim to fame is, yes, I am the GM of Goblets and Gays. But um, I was also on a, a really long running podcast for about seven or eight years. Uh, Transition Transmission. Uh, it was specifically in involved uh, LGBTQ news and issues, which ended, we ended that in like 2016, 2017. Other than that, now I'm just a TTRPG player and GM for Goblets and Gays. And lastly, prolific Paizo author, podcast host, actual play actor, and kineticist enthusiast, Vanessa Hoskins. Hello, I am Vanessa Hoskins. My pronouns are she and her. Uh, and you may know me from such podcasts as No Direction Beyond, Roll for Combat, Three Ring Adventure, or Roll for Combat, uh, The Fall of Plaguestone. Uh, I'm also the mother of Super Smash Finder, author of the legendary Kineticist for Second Edition, uh, and the second book of The Abomination Vault's Hands of the Devil. And I am drinking water. So much water. And unless you're listening to this after five o'clock at night, in which case I am politely sipping <laughs> bourbon. I also use he, him pronouns. I am currently drinking some blue raspberry flavored water. And I am overjoyed. Ooh to be able to be talking to you all today. So you are going to be the stars of the show today. I have a couple questions that I want to get the conversation going. If you have things that you want to bring up, just naturally, go ahead. Yes, I was thinking, if we're going to be the stars and there's three of us, does that make us Orion's belt? Just celestially keeping your GM pants on? <laughs> <laughs> or you could be stuck inside of a, a cat's collar. That's a callback to the 90s. Sure is. Yay, we're old. <laughs> oh, no. So what uh, what games are all of you running right now? Uh, I'm running, uh, I'm the GM for Goblets and Gays. We're homebrewed Pathfinder 2E podcast. I also run another podcast, uh, Anima Magiri, which is a 
a City of Mist actual play uh, that is inspired by my love of horror media and my love of the Persona games. What about you, Vanessa? Uh, I am actually not running anything right now. I am playing in a lot of stuff, but I really want to run. I haven't I haven't run in a little while, and I am getting Game Master Fever. I kind of want to run uh, Abomination Vaults, but when I asked if there was any interest, I now have about three parties worth of people that want me to run <laughs> yeah. it, which is a little daunting. Uh, and I've also recently put out a Twitter about sort of a nature-themed campaign that has to do with the Fae and the Fae Wild and logging consortiums and such, and I kind of want to run that too, but that would be like a homebrew game. So I don't know. I, I, I have that. I have that GM. Ooh, that GM itch right now. <laughs> and Quinn. Oh, I am busy scratching the heck out of my GM itch. Um, I have two regular games going. Um, one that uh, we've been running for almost two years now. Uh, we started with Fall of Plaguestone, and now we're sort of going into uh, sort of homebrew um, kind of uh, storylines and stuff. Um, uh, like the the last one was sort of they were um, trying to get some crazy artifact out of like a Duragar city. Um, and then like in this current one, they're like on this mission uh, that will TLDR basically like end slavery in Jellyax as it's known. Um, so some pretty wild stuff. Um, and then I have another steampunk um, Pathfinder one that's just 100% homebrew. And um, I have some friends who I just sort of let them like, I, I just sort of, I, I got to see them for the first time in like a, since the pandemic. And I just left my Pathfinder core rule book over there. Like just, I didn't say anything else. or just like, hey, when you have time. And now they were like, hey, we have to play uh, <laughs> a couple weeks later. <laughs> um, so then, uh, so I'm for them, I'm actually going to be running abomination vaults uh and then also i have a um i've been sort of just making up sort of adventures to to uh uh, introduce people to the game um so i just made up uh one um in honor of the mwangi expanse book uh something called all of life's treasures and it's just like a little like sort of one shot that i have up in roll 20 that i can use where you start try and start art thieves and i've already run it a couple of times so like basically anybody says i want to play i want to learn pathfinder i can just pull this out and run it for them so what makes 2e such a good game for being a game master do you guys think I think one of the the things that's so nice about it is how flexible it is to be able to express a character for players, but that leads to being really good for GMs. So I can say, okay, we're going to do a game like I was talking about before that's nature themed. And even coming down with like, hey, such as, you know, play as a Lushy, be a Druid, be a Ranger or something like that. Even that restrictive of a game, you still have a ton of different options to go from a player perspective, which means as a GM, you can tell very specific niche stories and still get a group of players that all have interesting takes on the concept and all have a good balance to the party, you know, healing and frontline melee types range support, all of that, even with something as narrow as be nature-based. Uh, plus one to everything Vanessa said. One of the things I think is really good as a game master is, because uh, you don't always get this in a system, is Pathfinder's encounter budget system is super reliable, right? If you want to stat on an extreme encounter you will be looking at a TPK, right? Or, you know, a severe... Oh, yeah, don't, don't do extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, like, really don't really do not do that unless you've got some, like, unless, like, player death is something that you're, like, accounting for in the story, right? But, you know, low will give, like, a low and moderate, you know, and, and that's, like, a really great thing for, for GMs because you can sort of t- 
tune encounters how you want them to do. Um, and you don't have to like fudge or kind of think super hard about it. Yeah, it's way easier. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just super easy to like, um, you know, especially when you don't have like lots of sort of uh, prep time. You can just sort of like go pick some monsters, get them in budget and be okay with it. It's got really good subsystems like out of the game mastery guides. Those all like work really well um, if you want to use them uh, and you don't have to sort of house rule all, a lot of that stuff. And then like the last thing I would say is that the rules are sort of they're robust. There are lots of rules for things, but you don't have to use them all. And they're modular enough that you can sort of. Uh, when you want to care about something, um, when it's important to the story, you can just lean on it and let it do the work and then sort of move away from it. Well, um, I definitely want to piggyback on top of everything everybody else said. Um, and I don't want to repeat it, but for me, definitely as a game master is the how in-depth the character creation is for my players. The fact that people can play exactly what they want without worrying about, um, you know, being like, uh, this doesn't really like this, this like weakens my character or i want to be like a leshy investigator with a uh druid dedication that doesn't absolutely break your character and make them nigh unusable and so everybody creates the character that they want to and i feel like i feel like that really helps get my players into the game and invested in their characters really quick because they've spent all of this work on them and then i pretty much just play around and see what happens. One of the other things about Pathfinder 2nd Edition is that it is uh, very bound to the world of Galarian. And you don't have to play in Galarian, sure. But playing in mm. Galarian is a bit of an asset because as a kitchen sink setting, you can have that leshy investigator go on adventures with a samurai from Tian Sha with a gunslinger from Alkenstar and a witch with green skin and a black pointy hat. And it's fine. It's legitimate. There are places in the world of Galarian for all those people to exist. And having them come together for a heist or some other big adventure isn't outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. So what do you guys think makes a good game master? Let's start with Quinn. So there's like a lot of things that we kind of can say about it, right? But I I, I think this core, for, for, for me, uh, having done it for a while now and sort of observed it, I, I think... The core skill for being a good game master is being a person who's not only willing to entertain and surprise the players, but willing someone who's willing to be entertained and surprised by the players. I think when you look at game mastering as kind of a, hey, here's this thing that I do two and four players and less about reception it leads to a like a lot of burnout, but b it you, uh, often it sort of closes the experience. But when you're just like, Okay, I want to also see, like, I'm really interested to see what y'all are going to do with this, right? And then uh, that leads to you sort of creating things that have a bit more space for the players to be in and stuff. And that, that is more sort of give and take. And then, then the players tend to get more invested and into that. Is 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 for me, I find that that is a core thing that I, I want to be a good game master. Um, Honestly, yeah, definitely piggyback off that. But like the uh, ability to improv and just do yes and. Yes and is your best friend as a GM. Especially like, unless it's like something that you definitely do not want players to like go. If, if they're trying to take it in a dark direction, you might want to like pull them back. But um, yes anding and the ability for like players to shape the narrative. Um, I will say in season one of our show, um, the, there's this whole big plot point about the players finding this lost city and they end up finding the city is cursed. And they, instead of like trying to delve deeper, my players just went, 
no, and left. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's interesting <laughs> and going to change up the rest of our first season. Um, but it's also going to have some fun consequences down the line because they decided to say no and didn't investigate further. Certain things like there will be consequences for that, but there will also it also changes the story. I also look forward to just making them go back to this cursed city and like finally go through the massive dungeon I designed <laughs> for them. Just echoing on Aubrey said is being able to yes and being able to guide your players, but really it all boils down to being a good storyteller, being able to take the various narrative elements that you have at your disposal, which includes the characters that are playing in your game, not just the players, but the characters themselves, what their backstory is, what they need and what they want, which are often not the same thing. Uh, and using that to craft this narrative around them or with them in it. Even if it's a pre-published module, uh, you can adapt it, you can change it. You don't have to run it the way it's written just because it says so. You can modify that uh, to fit the, the characters that are playing through the adventure so that it's their story. And I think just the typical storytelling skills of pacing and plant and payoff, Chekhov's gun, all of these tools that we use as storytellers really utilize in the hands of a good GM means the mechanics don't matter as much as getting that story out there and hitting those moments and those story beats. If I can piggyback off that. Take a shot every time someone says piggyback. <laughs> <laughs> it was just making me think like good game masters are are glue more often than not, right? Like you're taking all of those elements like, like Vanessa was saying, you're like going and then you're stitching them together. You're sort of making, you're binding them together. So what do you all do to create these compelling stories? And I guess, first off, do you guys typically run a sandbox or pre-written or both when you're running games? I'll go first. Um, it's changed over time. So back when I was in college, I didn't even know pre-written adventures existed. We only ran sandboxy stuff. We only ran uh, homebrew type worlds where we said, hey, I want to run a game. And usually we'd have an idea. And this is where I came up with the idea of like, a nature-based game or something where we'd say, you're at a magical school, so everyone has to have some tie into magic. Even if you're like, oh, I want to play a fighter, well, some sort of magical background um, just to sort of belong at this school or some reason why you're at this magical school. And then we said, okay. So we sat down, made characters, and then created a story out of it. Now, these days, I run a lot more pre-written adventures. I think just because I'm in that world and in that part of the industry that I I see all the time, effort, and energy put into it, and I realize, like, wait, this could save me a ton of time. Now, that being said, when I run it, I'm definitely going to mod things a bit. Uh, if if it says that there's an NPC in town who's getting, like, nightly psychic attacks, but I have a, a player character with psychic power, I'm just going to make it their story and say, well, you we don't need this NPC side story. No, no, you're getting nightly nightmares, and you want to figure out what's causing them. Yeah, uh, definitely stuff like that. I do run a good mix. Um, I wouldn't say that our current homebrew campaign is a sandbox, because there is definitely a clear goal that the players are always working towards, but they are uh, they're definitely spending a lot of time in a couple of different countries in, in my world that I've created. So it's very much rooted there, so it gets like a mix of a sandbox, whereas there are a lot of things they can go out and find that I have created, but they're mostly just following this main story. And um, I want to run more pre-written Pathfinder 2e stuff because I've really only been in the system for, like, I didn't really get a chance to play much Pathfinder 1st Edition, uh, and I jumped on 2nd Edition about a little over a year and a half ago. So, and I actually just ran Sundered Waves last night as a one-shot for my podcast. Oh, nice. 
And that was, that was actually really fun. Um, and I did actually end up changing a few things. Like there's at one point where they fight a, uh, a water elemental, but like, I was like, Ooh, this is going to add maybe a little bit too much time because none of my players are built very well to deal a lot of damage to said water ele elemental because they mostly use what it's like resistant against. So, uh, I ended up changing it to, it's a, like a water method that has like illusion magic that makes itself look like a water elemental. So they're, they're prepping for this giant fight. Um, and they're like, Oh, this is going to be so hard. And it's like a, a water method with like 12 <laughs> HP. So like the, uh, and it, and then they just like hit it and take it out. And then they're just like the, the fun moment of, the tension just deflating and they're going, Oh, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of try to keep them off, uh, on their toes a little bit. I do uh, a bit of both. So, so it, it's interesting because they use two different sets of energy, right? I, I can be maximally when I, when I sort of write my own sandbox, um, and do it from scratch, I can be maximally responsive to what sort of players are doing. Uh, then I'm sort of, making or finding my own maps, putting together things. I'm doing a lot of the sort of nuts and bolt work too, which can be really fun. I actually really enjoy that. But also uh, some, some some weeks that that is very hard um, to do with everything else that I'm doing. But the pre-written uh, adventures are fun. It, it still takes energy to kind of read them, absorb them, sort of figure out where things are going to go. But you don't have to start from scratch on it. So like most of the stuff will be do done and like a lot of your prep is just making sure you understand the points of transition and uh, where players might, you know, you sort of like, like it's good to understand sort of where the rails are. So you know, uh, have some thoughts to what you're going to do when players go off them inevitably and, you know, sort of filling in just the fine details. I uh, read a lot of pre-written adventures and steal liberally from them uh, in my, in my, <laughs> Uh, I mean, that, yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a good thing that I, I think people don't like, like sometimes when people are like, I don't do oh, pre-written, sure. it was like, but you can steal from pre-written and that's a great way to do your homebrew. Right. Yeah. And so oh, that's an interesting plot point. Maybe I'll borrow that. This is a cool setup for an encounter. I'll, maybe I'll use this. This map is really useful and I don't, I don't need bandits all over it. I need a, a water, you know, a water method pertaining to be a water elemental, uh, but maybe the map is really good. And so you just use that. Yeah. Or like malevolence, just to use a very specific one um, and, and spoiler free, but malevolence has this really great take on the research rules from the game mastery guide um, and expands them in a way that you could like really adapt for any game that you're running. Um, you know, so stuff like that. You can just, you know, and, and especially in the adventure paths, like, um, you know, you could steal the circus rules from Extinction Curse, you know, things like that. Just like, cool, like go into the toolbox and yoink, those are mine now for this game. Well, you know, they say that, oh man, I completely forgot what they say. Uh, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. There we go. I got there. Yeah. Whether you're doing pre-written or homebrew or, you know, slash sandbox, uh, you have to keep the story compelling. So what do you think makes for good villains, lovable NPCs, and what do you do to help uh, world build? Um, yeah. Uh, actually, I have uh, a really great villain going around currently in my, uh, in my game. It is actually the biological father of one of my players. Um, he is this really powerful uh, chronomancer who has essentially what he's performed. He's done a lot of really bad things, but like uh, he's definitely been pushing the plot along. He's been essentially one step behind the players for this entire season, trying to catch up to them because he wants something that they have. Uh, and he's also responsible for um, 
something that happened to our barbarian, and uh, multiple people in the party have ties back to him. And it, it definitely helps get people like just invested in that. And the we don't like this guy, we want to take him down, but oh my god, is he so powerful? We have to buy time to get more powerful to take him down. And then um, I think lovable NPC is, is I think my player's favorite NPC is um, at the end of season one they met a demi lich named Winston. Um, and he is just vibing in an alchemist's tower, you know, and he's got like an apprentice who pretends to be the actual really powerful wizard, but she's just like, I'm just an alchemist. I have actually no magical power. It's all him. Uh, they spent, uh, they spent an episode, uh, because she gets kidnapped. And so they spent an episode running around with the Demi-Lich trying to find his assistant. All right. I have, I have a couple questions. Uh huh. So they're trying to buy time, right? Yeah. And their enemy's a chronomancer, right? Yep. It's uh, really hard Who to do. Who else is going to sell them time besides the <laughs> chronomancer? It sounds like they're just amassing gold to be like, excuse me, sir, may we buy some time? Ha ha. Now we got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that is a possibility. Who knows? <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I can't pass no, up an opportunity for a stupid pun. <laughs> it's great. I, I make plenty of them too. So Vanessa, what do you do? What do I do? Oh, like for a living? I'm just kidding. I'm not a chronomancer. Shh. It's Shh. a secret. Um, my. My take on a good villain is someone real. I really enjoy uh, down-to-earth villains who you can understand, like, they they have some verisimilitude. You can understand why they're doing what they're doing, even if it's the wrong call. And when I write villains, at least from whole cloth, uh, I try and take a standpoint of what would drive this person to do something horrific or evil or destructive that seems legitimate to them how do they get to the point where it's like well obviously i have to burn down everyone in this village like that like that's a thing i have to do and maybe they're a chronomancer and they know that some child somewhere in this village is going to grow up and do something truly unspeakable and so they they you know at first they're like well it was this child so they make that kid sick and they you know die by the time they're two and it's like oh that's really sad but then they look in the future and a different child grows up to be this horrible villain and they realize the circumstances of this town are so terrible. I know. I'll just I'll just burn the town to the ground so that this villain can't be born of it without thinking maybe there's another way around this or something like you always you always want to give them a, a, a human or a, I mean, maybe they're not a human, but a humanitarian perspective that gets twisted and then they think what they're doing is the right thing. Because evil people don't think they're evil. They're the heroes of their own story. They're the heroes of their own story. They're just misguided. They don't They don't understand what they're doing is destructive. And I think those villains make the best villains. Uh, and if you can't do that, then make them a technology synthetic uh, simulacrum gnome <laughs> who has lightning punches. I might have to steal that. I mean, Pathfinder Society scenario. <laughs> One lightning strikes, but mm-hmm. just, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think of... Like kind of like NPCs of both sides, sort of like ones that the players love and ones that hate in kind of terms of like resistance, right? Like like kind of kind of like one of these acts that we're doing as Game Master is sort of like this creative resistance, right? We can't, you know, like, yes, we could let the players like go from point A to point B and just not oppose them. Um, but like no one would have a lot of fun, right? Um, so we have to sort of put things in their way and like a for a playful, lo- uh, for, for a lovable NPC or someone that they sort of want to see. It's not that the NPC is, if the NPC gives them 
sort of everything that they want and is just always cooperative, that doesn't make them particularly memorable. I find what makes them memorable is that there's a playful resistance, right? They might be like, you know, I've had stuff where there's some like cute kid that they encounter who's like, there's a, uh, a troublemaker kid who's like totally mischievous, right? But like good hearted, right? And so they're always like, okay, hell, where'd that kid go? Right? <laughs> like he's, he's getting in trouble, right? And they remember that NPC, uh, because they make this sort of playful trouble and resistance. And then for a, for a villain, right? Someone that the players are going to like, oh, oh my God, I hate that guy. Um, it's sort of, you ramp that up and it's like kind of a, uh, an oppositional resistance. It, it's that, that, that villain is sort of, uh, taking something that they're invested in and uh, really going at it kind of hard in a way that they don't like. And so they are almost kind of compelled to not like this person and to like fight them back because they're going to like lose whatever it is that they're invested in. For the resistance, uh, the, the other last part of it is just getting them invested in things. Right. And letting them, you know, by letting them participate in the world building, by letting them experience sort of other characters like, you know, uh, you don't want to threaten the town if you don't get characters to care for it first. And then if and then once the villain threatens a town that they care for, um, then, you know, the players are all in on it. So what do you guys do to create a welcoming environment? Because getting into, uh, you know, the the villain backstory and stuff like sometimes. Uh, there might not be things that people vibe with. So what do you do when you sit down at a session uh, to make sure that everyone's on the same page? Uh, let's start with uh, Quinn this time. It's like people stuff, right? It's, it's, it's communicating is making sure that um, you you have a talk with your players about what kind of stuff that they're want to see stuff that they don't want to see if they don't, you know, if they don't like snakes or spiders or, you know, or, or some other kind of scenes like, like establishing that stuff up front. Um, and then, and then respecting that, uh, goes a long way. Um, you know, uh, you can, you know, de- definitely I would encourage you to use like any number of cool safety tools out there. So people have that. It's a, a lot of it is just psychological safety, right? Is knowing that if there's a problem that's going to come up, um, that there's a, that, that we've already thought about and accounted for a way for you to deal with. So you're not going to have to feel like out of place or like a jerk to just advocate for yourself. Right. Um, that you, that you can speak on what you need and what you want. And that, and that to me goes like a long way towards making a place wel- uh, uh, a welcoming environment at the table. Um, yeah, I definitely would piggyback off of something like that. It's just making sure you know what everyone's comfortable with. And one thing I have found that has been really helpful in this campaign is if I have a session that I think is going to be heavier or something bad might happen that like may like I want to emotionally prepare my players as much as I can. Like, I'm like, something bad is going to happen. Like, I want to make sure that my players are going to be fine and that they can shake everything off after the end of the session. They're not going to be, like, stuck in that headspace for a couple of days. And I would just I give my players enough, like, time to prepare emotionally. Like, hey, something bad might happen this upcoming session. I am just letting you know so you can emotionally be prepared. And if you're not, like, in a good space, uh, I can work around that. I think it really what it all boils down to is is communication between the GM and the players, between the players themselves, and setting expectations. That way, if there's something that a player isn't going to like, uh, whether that be uh, certain themes in the game or you know body horror, sexual assault, or even just you know scary clowns, 
you talk about it ahead of time and like, okay, so we're going to do Extinction Curse and you're all circus performers. And one player can be like, yeah, but I really don't like scary clowns. That's fine. Scary clowns just aren't part of the circus. And if an encounter comes up in the adventure that normally is a scary clown, no, it's something else. Uh, you know, w- whatever the case may be, because you really have to, you know, respect if people have triggers, uh, you avoid them. And it all comes down to uh, being flexible as a game master, as a storyteller, uh, and also just having those clear lines of communications ahead of time so you know what landmines to avoid. Uh, the best way of doing this, I think, is a session zero, not just for, oh, I'm going to play a fighter, I'm going to play the healer, uh, but for sitting down and, and saying, how do we expect this to go? Uh, what sort of themes do we want here? Hey, when I describe how you kill an enemy, do we want a gory description of what happens? Or do you just want, and he's defeated and lays unconscious on the ground and we all move on. Uh, we need to know what to expect so that the person who gets into the game going, um, I took a spell that literally ejects people's bones from their body to deal damage. You say, mm, yeah, but so-and-so is not into body horror. So maybe don't take that spell. And you can figure all that out before you are dedicated to the bone ejection mage uh, <laughs> build and come up with something else that you're having fun playing. Or yeah. Doing. So as Paizo starts to expand out their settings, yeah, especially with the latest publication with the Mwangi Expanse, we're going to start taking players into new areas, areas that uh, haven't been explored before, and playing people who are different than them. So what do you guys do to be able to play someone who's different from you without resorting to either harmful stereotypes or just avoiding it entirely, uh, which I think erases those uh, interesting cultures and heritages. And it's definitely something I've been definitely thinking about a lot this last year, is how do I play a character that is different from me? And it's very interesting, because um, during our upcoming season break, one of our players is actually going to be running a game. And um, our player, Aki, and uh, she is a AAPI, and so she's going to be running something in a setting that is very... AAPI Bimpak. Uh, and so it's definitely, I actually sat down with her and I was like, okay, this is my ideas for a character. This is kind of what I want to play. Like, what is your advice? And like, do you have anything that like I should read, I should watch to get a better idea of what this is like? And don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, don't be afraid to read Google is a good resource. Uh, reading, watching movies, watching documentaries, and just educating yourself, I think, is the best way to do any of this. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is don't play the stereotypes. Like, whatever the stereotypes, just don't, don't play them. And it's not to say I'm ignoring what's there, but like Aubrey was saying, do you, if you're going to play someone different than yourself, do the research and not just, oh, here's what I heard about this such and such person, this culture... Or, or people with this situation, read and research people that are in that culture or in that situation and what they think about their own culture and their own situation. And don't just go off of, well, here's the general consensus. I'm just going to do that because inevitably you will be playing something that is stereotyped and likely offensive. I would say tread cautiously when you're in those situations, both as a game master and as a player. Uh, to make sure that your perspective on it or how you're playing the character is is genuine. One of the things I, 
I find is how similar we all are as people. So even when you're playing someone from a different culture than yours, they're still a person. They care about their families. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that are more common to the human experience than are different. You can lean into those bits specifically so that you're not othering people. So I come from it from like a different experience, um, having like done this for like a really long time um, gaming, um, sort of as a black player, right? Um, I've been sort of playing other people, right? Like like there's no, like you, you know, it's just a historical thing. You could go back and look at all the old games. There, there, there are no black people in these <laughs> things. And, and what black people that they do include are... I'm just not going to talk about it. Um, right. So, yeah, so, better, better so, right, so, yeah. so for me, I look at it and was just like, well, this is just another day ending in Y, right? Because it's like, as I play sort of people who are definitely not me come from like another experience from me altogether. It's just a matter of like, they're just people, right? Uh, since they're people, as that, that's the operate word, you're just sort of focusing on kind of what makes people people and then using the, like, if you focus on sort of like their motivations and where they're, you know, coming from and what they're doing, th- those things are like universal across cultures, right? You know, it may, is, is why you can watch, uh, we, you know, we can sit here in America and watch, uh, anything from like Bollywood to anime, you know, um, to whatever else we want to make, what other cultures there are making entertainment we can consume all of these things even though they come from different cultures because these human things are are universal right uh though the details can be very very different so focus on the people first the details second one thing that i've like learned like helps tremendously avoid these minefields is just just drop the notion of doing accents just just let that fall yes. gently by the wayside kick it off a cliff if you need to <laughs> right. Um, and, and, uh, like a really good video I found, um, a while ago, uh, to help with this is, uh, this one, uh, how to create a uh, hundred distinctly different voices. It's a really great short video on how you can sort of combine different elements to make distinct voices that aren't accents. Oh, right? that's really awesome. Right. And so, so, so you can create different character uh, and characterization. A lot of the problem with, uh, that people have with this sort of characterization, um, and the stereotypes is a lot of the way, a lot of the normal ve- vehicles that we've used to do characterization are like kind of like accents and then the sort of associated kind of things with them, which ends up playing okay when you're using sort of non sort of marginalized, um, accepted sort of characters, right? Like it, it, it's more acceptable to do sort of maybe like an Irish accent for, or a Scottish accent for your dwarf, right? But then if you were, you know, trying to do some sort of, you know, uh, like a, like an Indian accent, right? Like it might be kind of a offensive or, uh, or, or like an African accent or something like that. Th- those ones are a little bit different when you, when you start going to other places. So avoid that. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, di- I did have a friend point out a disturbing trend in uh, at least movies where everyone speaks with a American accent, unless you're from someplace different, in which case you're always British. <laughs> and I-, I like that idea of, of not right. trying to stick to an accent, but just creating a, a unique person and they, they live here, but this is, how they talk and it doesn't necessarily have to be a reflection of any real accent so i like that yeah i can only do like a vague eastern european russian (laughs) accent so i really worry about the accents too much i just occasionally toss that vague european slash russian accent in there as a different character i i will fully admit that as a white mutt of mostly irish descent i do give my dwarves an irish accent 
but maybe that's just me. I personally love to do uh, Southern style accents, Southern American yeah, style. Yeah, I do love the, so- the, the Southern <laughs> Southern accents on dwarves. It's kind of cool. But I think it's a good idea. It's like, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, what I was going to try to say is I don't really try to do accents from anywhere else because I'm not, I and my heritage, I'm not from yeah. those places. So I don't want to be stepping on anyone's toes. So I'll, I'll like, I have one caveat that I do do that, but. I'm also mostly Irish, so. Yeah, and I, I found once I dropped yeah. accents, it actually helped my characterization, like helped me think clear, like, like, it, like, you know, if I tried to do a certain accent, then I was like, also sort of like accepting a certain level of stereotyping, even, even, mm-hmm. even, even if I was no, trying to be point. good. And when I, when I no longer have that, then I just have to think of this as a whole cloth person and I have to give them that I have to think about them as a person and how they talk and how they think and how they act. Okay, that's a good point. I really like that. I will I will reconsider my use of Irish for, for dwarves. So let's do some general advice for game masters. Uh, and there's nothing more that a game master has to do than uh, master how to herd cats. Uh, in which case, these cats are players. <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, some of the different kinds of players that a person can get at their table. So what do you guys do? to combat when uh, you have problematic players or people who just keep murdering or doing not great things at the table. Let's start with Vanessa. Well, okay, so you say problematic and someone doing not great things. I mean, step one is take them aside and say, hey, uh, so that's not what this game is about. Like, it's not about um, we're trying to sneak past the guard. Let's just murder him. Uh, we need to steal from this guy. Let's just murder him. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a house cat in our way. We'll just, you know, murder that too. I, if that's not what your game's about, I think setting that person aside and saying, mm, okay, so this isn't what the game's about. And you obviously just want to, like, bash some heads in and get in combat. And maybe the person says, yeah, I just want to get in combat and everyone else wants to talk their way through stuff or be sneaky or be whatever. What you have to identify is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes bad player behavior, air quotes, uh, is driven by this isn't the game they thought they were going to play. They want something else out of the game that they're not getting. In that case, if I have my murder hobo character that's just trying to make everything a combat, maybe there's not enough combat. So you have to say, all right, I'll make you a deal. We'll definitely be getting in combat more often, but just cool it when people are going to talk past stuff, but they're not going to be able to talk past and sneak past and puzzle past everything. So you'll get your day in the sun. And then when it comes to the combat aspects, uh, you just give them a spotlight, right? You just be like, all right, you played the fighter, yes, fighter, because you want to be the best at combat. Well, here it is. Roll initiative. You're going to do some cool stuff uh, to make sure that that player's satisfied. And I find that meeting those player needs for what they're at the table for often will curb that bad behavior. Depending on the nature of the problem and, um, you know, sort of how bad it is and how, how much of a misalignment there is from like the game you're trying to play and um, the game they want to be playing, it's important to keep maybe sort of like, you know, not playing as a part of the thing, right? Like in, in, a, in a good way, right? Like, hey, maybe, you know, if, if you're running like a mystery investigation and they want to sort of do a dungeon crawl, you might need to be like, hey, we're, we're not going to do a dungeon crawl. Maybe when we do a dungeon crawl, we'll give you a call or something like that. You know, that that, that should be on the table, not as like a first thing. Um, but I think sometimes people put up with that misalignment sort of too long for both parties. And then everybody sort of ends up unsatisfied. Um, and so when you put up that table, I think uh, basically everything Vanessa was saying works. And then if it's still not 
enough, you know, that there can be a, a peaceful kind of disagreement. Like, you know, hey, we're not going to, you, you know, and I think that's a big thing, too. It's just like, hey, this game's just not what you want. Maybe Pathfinder's not your game. Or, yeah, maybe Pathfinder's not your game. Maybe, maybe you want uh, uh, to be doing something else, right? Maybe you don't, maybe, maybe you don't like the combat that we do have, right? Maybe you don't like this part of the system. And that's okay, too. It's, 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 it's giving people a way out. Because I think uh, when I hear about sort of long-suffering groups, having lots of problems it's in part because they've like tied all of these other things to the game and people can't just sort of part on the game without endangering something else so they suffer with it so making it so other stuff is not on the table and you can sort of support ways i think is like a really good way to handle some of that stuff um yeah no it's definitely a lot of what other people said but um also definitely during that session zero you sit down you talk to everybody about what kind of game they're looking for absolutely like are you here? Are you here to want to be the like? Do you want the, the this rough and tumble combat that you feel like you're barely getting through by the skin of your teeth every time, or are you looking for more of an adventure, puzzles, mystery? And I, I for me especially, like uh, doing a homebrew campaign, sitting down and talking to everybody means I can be like, okay, these are the kind of elements that I want to include in my campaign. Um, and especially like we have a player, our player Sparlock. Um, before he joined our group, he played mostly with very uh, adventurous society stuff. So it was mo- it was very much like a lot of combat, mostly combat, mostly math, mostly rolling dice, very light on the role playing and things like that. So it's been interesting uh, over the course of our season and a half so far to watch him grow as a role player. And especially, like, in the beginning, it was his character, very one note, very much like, I am a goblin, I like fire! Um, and, which it, we all, we all, we all love his character. It is, she is adorable, and she creates so much fun chaos for me as a GM. But, you know, definitely over the course of the season and a half, we've watched the character evolve and become more nuanced and, um, rather than like, and just quite often a few times is actually offered up lore that, you know, I haven't pressed for. I've been like, hey, could you tell me more about your character so I can include it in the story? And, uh, recently the, the character just went through this gigantic, like, moment that actually had the player coming to me and being like, I think it's time for this character to change. Like, like, keep the character, but like, something is going to happen that is going to absolutely shake their faith in their deity. So they they're no longer going to be a cleric. Um, so they've yeah. actually uh, they've actually moved from cleric to oracle. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, uh, and it's it's, it's so, such a great moment, um, especially this person who, when we started, was very much more combat focused, not really RP focused. To have this moment and watch them sort of grow as a player was a lot of fun. And I mean, there there might be just be the time where the the combat heavy player just hasn't played in a game that like that has had all these heavier roleplay stuff and they haven't realized that it might be something they would enjoy. Right. When they leave your plan for, for whatever you're, you're doing, whether it's a, a pre-written or a sandbox, what do you as a game master do to do that? Yes. Ending that we talked about a while ago. Yeah. Um, as I said, uh, there was a big moment in our season one where the, the, the players, they were exploring the city that I had written. Most of the rest of season one was, them exploring this massive labyrinth under the city and learning what exactly, why the city was lost and what cursed it. But when things started happening, the players were like, no, there's way too many undead here. We want to get out. We want to go because we don't think we can survive this. And I was like, 
it took me like a little bit being like, yeah, that's actually a viable reaction to have. It's not one that I expected. And I definitely, there were a few episodes where it was me just being like, um, okay, I'm going to have to rewrite our second half of our first season because I did not expect them to just be like, no, it's been a very interesting, just learning experience. And I, I feel like definitely from that growing as a GM and just being able to maybe eventually find a way to work that plot hook back in when maybe the players feel more comfortable in their characters or uh, just be like, okay, because this wasn't a very important thing that you were supposed to do that you didn't do, um, there might be consequences. There might not, depending on your party. The first trick is actually like a prep trick, right? Um, I, I've learned, um, you know, I've been running like a, a pretty much a weekly game um, actually now two over the last year, um, but, you know, like running like two weekly games, um, where I'm like making up content, um, from scratch, uh, for the most part of the time. And what I've learned is not to over prep, right? Like I kind of, uh, do just enough prep so that when they make a new decision, right? Like it's easier to be flexible, right? It's, it's, uh, real, real deflating when you're, when you've like prepared four hours of content and then they point like right away for it for some perfectly good reason, right? Like their characters like, well, actually, you know, like I, I've decided I'm going to be a pacifist, right? And it's interesting in the story and, you know, but it like points them away from your dungeon that you worked on. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's good to sort of keep a, uh, prep just enough that you can kind of keep close and just sort of make you need on the fly. And then the second part is just when, when characters are sort of turning away from a thing, see, uh, when you're flexible like that, you can kind of, so, sometimes you can just repurpose something you've built. Like, you know, if it's just a general encounter, you might just be able to like reskin some, uh, things and, and then insert them anyways. I feel like I'm rambling just a bit, but, but, but I, I guess really it is just, build the game in a way that you can just be responsive and, and have tools uh, like either quick combat encounter or something, you know, uh, maybe sort of uh, the rules for uh, making up something on the fly, uh, monsters on the fly and sort of statting them or just having like skill DCs, all, all that stuff, having those improv tools on hand so you can just sort of go go with them. So sort of like prepping to improv. Prepping to improv is, is how I would, would do it. So... I agree that prepping to improv have a list of kobold names when they're going to the kobold encampment, because inevitably they're going to be like, well, what's the name of this alchemist? Nitbit? Okay, nitbit, great. Uh, and what's the name of this guard? And you're like, really? Really want the names of all these things? So if you have, you know, 10 or 20 names just ahead of time written down, appropriate for whatever region they're going to be uh, exploring, that'll help you avoid that horrible problem where you're like it's um lamp it's uh bob <laughs> it's bob the kobold why is this kobold named bob boy that just broke my immersion uh, so that definitely helps but in situations like aubrey's like i understand that you have a show and so when all the players are like nope we're gonna go somewhere else and not do the cursed city uh well it's a show so i guess you're going somewhere else um but i i kind of think and this is where it comes back to session zero being so important there is a bit of a contract between the gm who's putting a lot of time into prep stuff and the players where you say this is what the adventure path is about this is what the, our campaign is about it's about saving the cursed city or whatever it happens to be 
And that's what it is. And if you don't want to play that adventure, then let's figure that out ahead of time. So that way, when you're faced with it, you know, uh, nope, this is the part that we were told that we're going to have to be curse breakers. Um, yep. Okay. This must be it. That they can lean into that part of the adventure. If you have uh, like a, people playing Extinction Curse and they're like, we don't want to be circus people anymore. On one hand, the adventure path does kind of cover that. But the adventure is about being circus yeah. people. There is the there's that. And if you don't want to be circus people, yeah, d- don't don't play extinction. And so I think it comes back again to session zero. It comes back to what we were talking about on communication, on making sure that that's there. Now, sometimes you think that you've ha- you you put all these breadcrumbs down that say you're supposed to take the path to the north. You're supposed to go north. All of the creepy stuff is north. All of the clues point north. And you're saying, okay, now we're looking at the big map. Where are you going to go next? And the party says, uh, based on everything you told us, we're heading south. What? Wait, what? Why? Well, that's where everything's going, isn't it? And you just sort of go, sure, everything that was going to be north is now south. Okay, great. It's all down there anyway. <laughs> uh, and you just, you don't waste all that prep. You you just steer them back in the direction uh, we sometimes call this the illusion of choice, but it's not always a terrible thing. Uh, you just need to keep the game running, right? You know, oh, the the bandits are hiding out at either the brewery or in this cave. And they're like, who, hmm, where do we want to go? Let's try the brewery first. Okay, then that's where the bandits are heading, hanging out. You were right all <laughs> along. So let's say that you have a, a pretty experienced group and then... Uh, someone drops out for whatever reason, and then you bring in a new player. What do you do to help acclimate that player and um, make sure that they don't feel overwhelmed coming into a completely new game? Um, you, you know, I just had this experience. Um, uh, I'm going through this experience right now. We, we uh, for my steampunk game, um, we uh, introduced uh, one of our friends who who had been wanting to play for a, a, a long time. They're they're completely new to role playing, uh, much less Pathfinder. Um, and we've been playing this game for a year, uh, so we have lots of stuff um, going on, lots of history and, and things going on. And and really, what I've done is uh, a couple things. Uh, The first thing is to not turn on the fire hose, not like, okay, here's everything you need to know right now. And, um, you know, drink up. Uh, that, that never goes well. Um, and, and they sort of forget 80% of what you tell them and they feel, uh, and, and it makes them feel sort of overwhelmed and not able to catch up. So I just sort of introduce, um, bits of rules, but also bits of the story as they come up, um, and not try to sort of give the full, like, context and go, okay, here's a, you know, and, and proceed with like a 30 hour lore dump. Cause, cause that's, that's also boring <laughs> for the other players who, who actually help to make that part of the story. And I encourage players to sort of help fill the new player in, you know, I'll ask a person to, can, can you tell them about this thing that you guys did back in the day? Um, and then that person will, will tell them and, and sort of involve the group in helping onboard the person into the story. And then mechanically, I just sort of give parts, you know, as they become relevant, I just sort of explain those parts, give them some reference and j- just bits and pieces um, so as they play in sessions, they uh, gradually build that up. I, ju- I just take take my time. I like to integrate them as much as possible into like their character, into the character of the other folks at the table. Uh, their siblings, their old roommates. This is my former master. Oh, I haven't swung a sword in years. Well, we're going to learn. Uh, you, you, you'll pick it right back up. Uh, things like that, just to just to give them a very direct and character-driven tie-in. 
uh, that doesn't seem like, ooh, yeah, no, we need a cleric. Uh, hey, does any cleric want to join <laughs> us? Oh, I'm a cleric. All right, great cleric. Come on, you're going to join the party. We need someone to heal us. Um, instead, if it's like, oh, the, even rivals, you know, oh, yeah, I knew someone from this time. I guess we can ask them. Um, that'll that'll tie their character into the to the plot. So it doesn't seem so jarring to all of a sudden have this, you know, character spring up out of whole cloth in the middle of a dungeon. And it's like, it's fine. They're joining you um, at the same token. If that's what you're stuck with, right? You're in the middle of a dungeon crawl and you know in game time this is going to take three more months underground in a dungeon, not leaving at all. Okay, so they show up and no one thinks it's weird. Anyway, we're <laughs> moving on. Uh, can be a perfectly valid reason to just get things moving uh, because ultimately you want to play the game. As for new players themselves, the general tactic I like to take with them anyhow, uh, one is if you have a veteran player who you think is a good mentor, let them sit next to each other if it's in person. Otherwise, you know, get them talking to each other so that they've got somebody that they can lean on uh, for rules and mechanics things and stuff like that. Uh, assuming that you're not taking that role yourself, because sometimes being a GM can be a bit overwhelming as it is. Uh, but the other thing is, I like to either have that mentor or yourself help them make a character that they want to play in a more descriptive way, right? So I don't have to say, well, did you want to play a fighter, a ranger, or a rogue? You said someone who's good at swords. Just don't worry about it. Be like, okay, so you're good with swords. Great. Um, what else are you good at? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, being sneaky. All right, cool. So I'm going to make you a rogue. <laughs> uh, you know, and then you just help them build a character, and then you you do descriptive. Now later, if they're like, you know what, being sneaky isn't nearly as important as being the best sword master ever, because that's how you've described yourself. All right, fine. Here's what we're going to do. We're gonna we're gonna retcon your character and make you a fighter and just don't worry about it you know you're a, you're a fighter trained in stealth okay great because it is more important that they have fun with what they're playing than that Ooh, but the retraining rules state that no, don't worry about that just make it work uh and the same with in in game too oh I'm, i really want to jump over the guy and get to the other side of the demon and then uh stab the demon it, you know okay as hard as i can you're like okay so they're going to tumble through uh, and you tell them what, like, does you, you take what they want their character to do and you translate it into the game rules so that they're learning as they go. You're going to spend an action to tumble through, make an acrobatics check. Great, you did it. And now we're going to use your last two actions for power attack just to hit them as hard as you can. That sounds pretty cool. Roll that dice. Oh, yeah, a bunch of damage. Okay, great. And then the next time their, their turn comes around, they might be like, I want to do that again. I'm going to tumble through their space and power attack again. You're like, great, good job. And over time, they'll just they'll figure it out. But starting with that description-based learning where they don't have to worry about what the rules are, just tell me what you want your character to actually do, and we'll help you figure out the rules. Um, yeah, we uh, with our group, uh, we have a player, Trula. Pathfinder is technically actually her only second ever TTRPG. She actually came in before we started recording. We played a about a three-month Monster of the Week campaign. She came in at the very beginning of it after about two years of me being like, hey, you would probably really enjoy this. You should play with us. And it took me about two years to get her to actually like give it a shot. And she really enjoys it. And we, she came in, she played Monster of the Week, which is a, uh, a much, much more rules light than Pathfinder. And then we went from Monster of the Week to Pathfinder. <laughs> it's been a bit of, uh, there's been a lot of times where I like, if she's doing a level up, I sit down and I talk through all her options. And I'm being like, okay, you're a witch. These are the options that you could take for your feats. 
this one is probably a little bit better for the character you're building than this one. Um, and same thing with spells. I'd be like, this is probably a spell that, like, the way you play, uh, and wanting to roll those big numbers, you're gonna want this spell. You get to roll big numbers with this spell. Um, or this spell is kind of a bit more aesthetically as to what you're, like, building your character towards. So speaking of other games, do you guys have any other games that you recommend that you think would help game masters improve their craft? Improve their craft. So you put an interesting caveat on that. I'm going to recommend a game because no one plays it, but I love it. It's my favorite role-playing game I've ever played, favorite system, and it's a Canadian system called Silhouette by DreamPod9. It is responsible for the heavy gear system, uh, but Silhouette is highly adaptable. It's a D6 only game, and it does a really great job of using probability to uh, make a, a very strong distinction between someone who is talented and someone who is skilled, or someone who's both. Uh, so I really like that system. It is a very flexible system. And one of the reasons I like it is it, especially for like old D20 system based players, it gets them out of the headspace of strength, dex, con. Int with charisma, because instead you have stats like creativity, you know, intuition. Uh, those are those are just stats you have. Um, agility and perception, for example. And and even though the system is designed around more modern games, uh, it's interesting to say, okay, well, when you shoot a gun or a crossbow, for that matter, um, it's going to be different if you need agility or perception based on how far you are from them. If they're up in your face, it's agility. At this point, it's just point and click. You just need to get that crossbow in front of them before they move out of the way. But if they're a long way off and you're doing that sniper shot, it's perception. And I think it's really cool the way that system is very flexible with uh, completely disjoining a skill versus a stat and mixing them together in different ways. Uh, Powered by the Apocalypse, I think, is probably one of the best things to come along in the last bunch of years. Especially the rules light, incredibly adaptable. Like Monster of the Week, I've run Monster of the Week so many times, and it's so great for people who are really experienced with TTRPGs, and also for the people that are not, because it's uh, lower rules, uh, but like it can feel like it's higher stakes, depending on like the GM, and especially playing a game like that as a GM. I feel like you become a better storyteller, because there's a lot more variables that you have to account for, because it is not as defined by rules. Same thing with something like Vampire the Masquerade. It is much more story-based, so you become better at just telling the story. And if you tell enough stories, do you get better at telling them? Um, I got a few. Um, so I'm going to agree with um, Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, w- w- one of the things that I think um, like Apocalypse World and sort of its variants do really well is um, provide language for things that we actually already do, right? You'll, you, you can, if you play Apocalypse World, and you've been doing Pathfinder for a while, you can actually kind of see some similarities in it, right? Like, yeah, you know, like moves are sort of like more stripped down and more sort of into the narrative focused um, versions of a lot of actions that you can take, right? Especially when you when you scope to downtime actions um, and exploration activities, right? Um, you can start to see there, there, it's not a one to one mapping, but you can you can sort of see um, the influence. Uh, of it. Um, it's a useful way to just sort of, um, look at sort of constructing, um, more player driven stories w- with that. 
um, also for the queen. It's just, uh, you know, it's a very simple, um, GM-less collaborative sort of world building, um, story just run by a deck of cards. Um, it's a brilliant piece of, uh, design, but also, uh, shows you how you can build, uh, uh the, the best thing about that game, uh, every time I play it and like introduce people to it is we always like, by the, by the time you're done, like, uh, 30, 40 minutes later, you've like constructed like this world and these characters that are just so vivid and lifelike, right? Without any sort of rules, without any other sort of real prompting, um, just by like working together. And it's a great way to sort of show how you can use with prompts and questions, um, can stimulate that world building amongst your own group. Um, and then, and then that world building, you know, and also with the For the Queen, everyone, by the time you get to the end of the game, everyone is so invested in that world and the characters. Um, and you can easily port those concepts into your Pathfinder game or whatever game that you're running. And, uh, and just, uh, the last one is actually not a game. Um, but it is, uh, uh, is that there are a couple things, but there's sort of like a couple books that are useful. Uh, there's improv for gamers, uh, which is a really great thing on sort of like is, is specifically focused on sort of using improv techniques for your gaming, which is awesome. Um, and, um, then there is, uh, the ultimate RPG game masters world building guide which has like a lot of cool exercises for doing world building um, for your games. So, so, so rather than trying to think of it whole cloth, you can sort of use these um, exercises to sort of guide the creation. And so that, that would be the stuff I'd recommend. Uh, what kind of tools do you use at your table or for prep time. Ooh, okay, yay! Um, I love tools. Um, I will, I will, I'll keep it as as brief as possible, though. So these days, I like using um, even when I'm gonna. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm preparing to play uh, an in-person game for the first time in a long time. Thank God. Um, but for even for that, I'm gonna use a virtual tabletop system. Uh, I'm gonna use Roll Twenty for mine. Foundry is also good and probably better for Pathfinder. I'm, I'm gonna be transitioning into that. But whatever you use, uh, I, I find that's like a really good tool because you can like put your prep in it and. And sort of keep that in like one uh, system, you know, if you can put your monsters and stuff in there, it's just, I, I just find it a much uh, easier uh, way to to prep these days. Uh, I also use any number of uh, different like map, you know, there are a ton of map, uh, battle map Patreons um, in there. I have like uh, probably like four or five uh, to them, but however much you want to do it is great having that on hand because um, if you have to make up maps each week. Um, that gets pretty exhausting. Um, but if you can just kind of go through what, what you have access to and pick something that fits your situation or see a map that you like, you can go, okay, I'm going to make an encounter around that map. Um, it, it definitely takes a lot of the pressure off. And, uh, then, uh, the Pathfinder, uh, monster tool, the monster maker on PFT tools. Yeah. <laughs> like legend. Oh my God. Um, you know, I use it as, it's just the best way because you can import stuff from archives of Nethys and then like easily scale. Like, like if you want to make a variant of a monster, you can like import it, tweak it, and then sort of port the stuff over. You can, um, you know, easily like scale it up, scale it down, um, make your monster from scratch. And it does like a lot of the formatting, all that stuff that you need and helps you with the calculations the best. I, I use that for writing whole cloth monsters for APs and things. I, so do I. It's, it's a great tool. Uh, my favorite tool when I'm Pathfinder is pf2easy.com. Just keep uh, that open on a tab um, or sometimes in its own browser window so I can just quickly look up game rules and feats and things like that because every once in a while and you're even as a player but especially as a gm you have a character going uh i'm gonna use 
Oh, I don't know. Name any feat. Uh, I always forget grapple. Stunning fist. Yeah, or grapple, right? And you're like, wait, okay, so how exactly... Grapple always confuses everyone because you've got 18 systems of grapple in your head and they're all very complicated and different. So you're like, okay, I'm just going to pull up grapple. And you're like, oh, that's right. It says you have to have a hand free. You said you're fighting sword and board. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, hold on. Now I have to make a decision. Like, and it's really easy to just pull the rules up super fast. And, you know, hey, I have this elixir of life. Uh, how much does it heal for? Oh, well, what is it? Lesser? Okay, I'll pull that up too. And, and it just makes it super, super easy to get that information. By the way, lesser elixir of life is 36 plus 6. <laughs> um, so if you need it, uh, all the rules are right there. And it, it does save a lot of time at the table, uh, especially when there are people that are like, wait can I do this and this at the same time? And you don't have to be like, okay, well, one's in the advanced player's guide and one's in the core rule book. It's like, no, no, just, just, just go to this website and look it up. The database is super fast, generally pretty reliable. And um, the other thing it does is it keeps your history. So you can just hit the forward and back arrows really quick to go back to, you know, that grapple rules in the next round when you wanted to double check. Oh, critical success. I forget what that does. Oh, yeah, the restrained. Oh, that's different. I'm going to hover my mouse over restrained and click on it, and it tells me what the restrained condition does. Like, it's so good. Yeah. It's just such a useful tool. That uh, Archives of Nethys. Archives of Nethys has been such a boon. Yes. Like, it is amazing, and I love it so much. It just, for my players especially, so they didn't have to buy books. But as uh, um, Quinn said, like, Foundry has been stepping up their game for Pathfinder stuff. Like, just recently, they've introduced a PDF importer. Mm. Oh, I know. Which I tested out for Sundered Waves, and it ran so well. It did all of the setup for me. Uh, Like, all I did was I dropped the PDF in. It set up the map. It set up vision on the map for me. Yeah, it set up vision on the map for me. And I was like, oh, this (laughs) is amazing. (laughs) Okay, wow. So here's the thing. Part of it is based on the script identifying which adventure path it is and remembering that this map has these walls and these things and having that be part of the module. But a lot of it is just parsing the text. And because Paizo is very um, consistent with how they place things, uh, it knows that when it sees a stat block, that that's a stat block. It knows that when it sees a, a header with a specific style code on it, that's the start of a new encounter. Uh, like it, it knows that what what's going to be under there and what's under that umbrella and how to format that properly. And so a lot of that is is due to just the really the tons of work that that module creator put into it. Oh, definitely, and definitely that. And then it, it sort of took it put everything into the journal tab as well and s- sorted it by all of its encounters and everything. And especially if you're going to run like the pre-made stuff, having that is really great. Um, I'm thinking about running a like a I, I think our next campaign may be one of the APs I was looking at a couple and I'm trying to let my players decide it might be Agents of Edgewatch it might be Extinction Curse it might be uh, Strength of Thousands who knows because it's going to be about a year down the line so I didn't want to commit to anything but having the ability to have the PDF put it onto Foundry and have it set up a lot of these maps for me so I don't have to spend a lot of time going Okay, vision is here, 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 here. They can't see over here. Having uh, that saves me hours where I can spend more time adapting the story for the players, balancing encounters because I run with a five to six player group. So a lot of times, the way they are in a book, I need to either, uh, I need to usually like increase 
the deadliness of them a little bit, or else my players just wipe the floor with it. So who was your best game master, and what did you learn from them? <laughs> yeah, for, first I'm going to say... I- I almost always game master, so I like, don't have like a ton of things, but I'll say one of the most influential on me was when I was a, a teenager, I got to play at a con game with um, Mike Pondsmith, um, uh, who made uh, uh, Cyberpunk and uh, of our tale, sorry, and legendary game designer Mike Pondsmith. Um, and I got to, you know, play in a game with it. And, and one of the things that impressed me most about his style uh, was how seamless he moved the game along. Like it's kind of like, like it's kind of like an effortless time management and kind of, you know, sort of like letting, like you didn't feel like at any point that it was rushed at any point that it was sort of like dragging uh, and things were just kind of moving. And that, like, I thought that was like really, that, that, that impressed me a lot. And it was something that I've like tried to like emulate um, in the years since. My best GM that I've learned a ton from was actually a friend of mine in college. His name is Chris. And he was so good at just immersing a player in the moment uh, and really getting you to feel like you were there. And some of his advice I still use to this day, it's not only what it looks like, give at least one other sense. Now, what does it smell like? Uh, is the air damp? What does it feel like? Uh, what does it sound like? Is there a noise in the background that really transports you to that spot? And I try my hardest to infuse as much of that into not only my GMing, but my writing as well, so that the players have this wealth of sensory information beyond just, oh, it's it's a bunch of houses. It's like, is it a bunch of houses? But it does it also smell like apple pie? Because that tells you it's a nice homey place that's inviting. Or is it a bunch of houses and it also smells like refuse? And maybe it's uh, down on their luck place with a bad sewer system or, you know, is some other problem happening? What does it feel like there? And the other thing that he told me that I remember to this day was about how to balance combat encounters and how to set them up and how to run them. And he said, your goal as GM during a combat encounter is to try as hard as you can to kill the player characters and fail. So you don't want a TPK. You don't really want a character death. Like you want the threat of there to be there. Like it might happen. And sometimes it does. And you hope it's heroic and wonderful, but you're there to constantly challenge them and put that thread out there that like this could go either way and we're going to need to play it smart but at the end of the day as a gm you still want to fail um my the greatest gm for me is is actually my dad oh uh my dad has been had been playing D since second edition uh, and here's actually how my, my dad and my mom met playing nice. and so when third edition came out uh, my dad taught me how to play and then all through high school he ran a weekly campaign for my friends and me as we were teenagers playing the game. We, we, just the amount of patience that looking back on this campaign that my dad had to have for us is mind boggling. We were, we were like 14 to 18 year olds <laughs> playing this game. Um, but I will always remember the adventures of my character who was a tiefling rogue. We had a dwarven barbarian, a elf ranger, and then a human druid. Like, I will always remember those adventures and how just bananas they were and just how much he went with it. And then also, like, as I was growing up, he read, like, all sorts of fantasy books to me. 
like uh, read all of the Belgariad and all of the David Eddings books to me. And so that definitely those books especially have, I feel really influence how I tell stories and like the kind of stories that I tell. And then the fact that I continue to read and just read so much fantasy literature. Uh, and I definitely get so many story ideas for them. And so what is your top piece of advice for a new game master? Um, my top piece of advice is honestly, just don't be afraid to fail. Like, there are times where an idea that you have and you're so excited about is not going to work. And it's going to fall flat. And it's kind of not going to feel great. But you always have to learn how to be like, okay, I learned something. This did not work. If maybe if I want to do it again in the future, how best could I do it? But also, what did I learn from this not working? How can I grow as a GM and just get better. Be more interested in your players than your plot, right? Uh, I think a lot of times when, when you're new, you're like, okay, I gotta like, you know, deliver this awesome plot um, to the players and I've gotta like uh, make this great like story and I, I gotta make all this stuff happen, but that doesn't include the players, right? Like you want to make sure that like what the players are doing sort of counts for stuff. If, if you just go more with what the players are doing and adapt, um, people are going to have a fun time. Um, and then you can start to learn um, where you can maximize that fun and sort of insert your own create creative stuff in there. But yeah, don't, 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 don't get too hung up on what you're, you're doing to the expense of letting the players respond and re react and invest in the environment. I would advise a new GM that you do not need encyclopedic knowledge of the system in order to run it. There's plenty of opportunity to learn as a group. Uh, if there is someone who is a player in your group who is, you know, very rules lawyery and I have everything memorized, great. Let that be one of their player duties. Hey, when it comes to a, a rules question, uh, you're going to be my advisor, right? You're going to be my advocate for the rules so that when I make a a call or I'm like, Oh, how do I adjudicate this? They're there to say, Oh, uh, grab an edge is a reaction. And you're like, Oh, great. Okay. Grab an edge. And just al allow, allow other players to take agency over the rules aspect. It is not your job to have them all memorized. That being said, also remember rule zero, where it is your game is the GM. And if you're like, you can't grab an edge at this time because reasons, that's fine too, because it's your it's your game. Feel free to uh, adjudicate as you see fit. One of the best parts of second edition is how tight the math is. Uh, sometimes it can be a pain, but it's really nice to know that at level one, DC 15 is like the magic number. And if you're not sure how hard something is, DC 15 <laughs> is the magic number. And as that goes up, DC by level chart is your friend. And you're like, oh, you're level two. Okay, now it's DC 16. And you just you know, now, now you sort of have a litmus test for how difficult something should be. So you don't have to worry about it uh, at the drop of a hat. And what is one piece of advice that you would give to experienced game masters? Watch APs uh, a lot uh, or watch or listen to APs and steal. I mean, indefinitely borrow techniques. Um, you know, there's just a lot of um, ways to like, like I find when I watch other people do it. There, there's so many ways to GM effectively. Um, you can sort of uh, 
pick up lots of tips. Um, you know, some, sometimes it's a whole bunch of things. Sometimes it's one little thing that a person d- does. Um, and you can sort of incorporate them into, uh, your game. You're not alone. Um, it's, you know, it's a very different thing than back kind of when I first started like a gazillion years ago, um, playing this where you just sort of had to figure it out for yourself. Um, and maybe you got to sort of witness a few other people, um, here and there. Um, you, you get to borrow from like thousands of GMs these days. So, so take advantage of that. My, my advice for experienced game masters is definitely is talk to your players. Uh, don't be afraid to also like give a little bit of hints towards your like story. And especially if, if it's a player story that you're like, okay, these specific things, like I have a player that, uh, learned some very, uh, like they're learned that like learned some stuff about their mom, their mom's character, and I I'm just like, hey, there are some things that you still don't know about your mom's character that are big. There they might change how you see her as a person, and I want to let you know so you can prepare yourself um, when they come out. So I'm not hitting you out of nowhere with these things, and I'm very much all of the prepare your players emotionally, especially if they're going to be heavy topics you're dealing with. Just so that, you know, they can have fun, they can be into it in the game, and so that they don't have to worry about just being stuck in that headspace, because I've had it happen to me before, and it's never really fun when you just can't leave that character headspace, and you're thinking about it, and it's just, you're trapped, and you just feel just like, it's like walking through a fog. Just prepare your players emotionally for anything that might be heavy. I think it's the same as for new players. You don't need to have all the rules memorized. And like Quinn said, be free to fail. Try something. If it doesn't work, that's fine. Do something else. But the one additional piece that I think experienced gyms occasionally will forget is to be on the side of your players. A lot of traditional game mastering, um, and I I see this in like organized play a lot because we we don't necessarily all know each other get in this adversarial mindset of like, it's the GM versus the players. And it's like, no, no, no. You're telling a collective story where the players are the heroes of that story. And so you as GM, it's like, oh, but I had this cool monster and I didn't get to do the the cool thing it can do. That's fine. Or here's this really difficult and challenging setup that the players are going to have to navigate through. And the players are like, but we have this very creative and interesting solution that bypasses it. Just, Just say yes. Just be like, wow. You're super smart. You figured it out. Congratulations, you. And like, be happy for them because they're the heroes of the story. And that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have fun. And oh boy, will you have fun. But just keep in mind whose story you're telling. You're not telling the story of, you know, the bandit king of Darkwood. You're telling the story of the players. Well, it has been so great talking to all of you, getting all of the various pieces of wisdom that you have from your own unique experiences. So, Let's keep that going. Where can people find more of you after uh, they listen to the show? Hello, um, I am Aubrey, and you can find me every Wednesday as the GM of Goblets and Gays. It, I actually may be a player by the time this comes out, because we are like three episodes from the end of our second season. I'm very excited. We're going to be playing some other stuff. But you can find me there, um, but you can also find me on my personal Twitter at MadQueenCosplay. Uh, I have links to other things. I am uh, part of a Lancer actual play, and I run a City of Mist game as well. 
Hi, uh, you can um, find me, uh, you know, I have uh, several sort of uh, Paizo um, books right now. Um, this uh, fall, uh, I believe September, uh, I, uh, as part of the Strength of Thousands uh, AP, I'm going, uh, my book, uh, Spoken on the Song Wind, is going to be coming out. Uh, so look for that. Uh, I'm really excited and happy about that. Um, uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Um, uh, talking all sorts of sort of uh, RPG uh, design thoughts and, and, and more kind of game mastering thoughts. Uh, QH underscore Murphy. The best way to find me individually is on Twitter at Ninja Cat Vanessa, spelled like it sounds. Uh, and if you want to see me uh, perform in many fine shows, uh, you can find me on Roll for Combat's Fall of Plaguestone, Three Ring Adventure, a secret project that has sort of been announced, but isn't on their website yet. Uh, and also on No Directions, No Direction Beyond, and Adventurous. So uh, find me any of those places as well. Awesome. Well, Game Masters, did you learn something? Uh, what are you going to take away from after listening to this podcast? Let me know on Twitter at Rulord2E. And if you want to subscribe for more, uh, visit rulord 2 e Com. Until next session, don't let the rules rule you. Don't let the rules rule you. Don't let the rules rule you. Don't let the rules rule you.